Go to your Bible, go to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And as you're getting to 1 Samuel, I, I want to give you some backdrop, some background, some history to where we are, where we're going, and what we're doing. I, um, I love the Bible. I, um, you know, it, in the most natural sense, but for, there's nothing natural about this book, but in the most natural sense, you know, this Bible is nothing more than dead trees and dead cows. I mean, really though, it's paper and, and leather and some cardboard and whatever this stuff's made out of. You know, for some of you, your, your, your Bible is made out of synthetic leather and, and paper. For some of you today, you're, you're looking at it on your phone. Some of you are just gonna check it out on the screen here in a moment. Yeah, I don't care where you read it. I don't care what media it comes from. If you will get in this book, this book will get in you. And it will transform you. I um, I just finished, I, it's funny, as I read my, my daily reading yesterday, it actually correlated with where I'm preaching today. I don't think that's ever happened before. And, you know, I've got a college degree in pastoral ministry with a minor in Bible and theology. I've been in ministry for um, 16, 17, 18 years. I don't know. I can't do math in my head. Since 2008. And I still read this. And sometimes I go, I don't get that. In fact, I'll tell you something here in a moment that as I read it, I go, I don't get that. Sometimes I read it, Max, and I go, I don't like that. In fact, I read it a lot and go, I don't like that. I don't like broccoli. I don't like it, but I eat it. You know why I eat it? Because I need it. Because even though I don't like it, sometimes it, it, it does something inside of me that is unseen, right? It nourish me, nourishes me in ways that I can't articulate because I don't have the understanding to tell you what's going on beneath the surface. I don't know how carbohydrates and proteins and fat work together to create cells and to sustain life, but bro, I ain't missing no meals. I don't know how the word of God, even though, like I said, in the natural, this is just dead trees and dead cows, but in the spirit, it is so much more than that. And I don't understand how it works beneath the surface to do a work in me, to make me stronger, to make me better, to, to make my life of higher quality. And like I said, sometimes I read it and I don't even like it. I don't agree with it. I have come to the determination that what I don't agree with means that I need to change. It doesn't need to change. But I, 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 if you will allow me to say it like this, I eat it anyway, because even though I don't always like it, and even though I don't always understand it, I know I always need it. And so I wanna encourage you, if I can do one thing on any Sunday morning in, in, in my preaching, my, my greatest desire 
maybe only second to you knowing that God loves you. And that's probably my greatest desire because I feel like too many people think God's mad at them, God's upset with them, God's frustrated with them. I think the majority of Christians probably feel like they're just letting God down all the time and they walk in guilt and condemnation and shame. And I want you to know the truth of the gospel is that you have received the righteousness of Jesus, that you are a son, you are a daughter of God, that he doesn't look at you in disappointment and despair. He looks at you and he calls you his own. That's my number one greatest desire. My number two greatest desire would probably be that you would develop an appetite for this book, that you would get hungry for the word of God, that you would not just show up on a Sunday morning hoping that, because I'm not that good, y'all. Like, I, I'm, I, I honestly, if I'm just being really plain with you, I can preach. I, I can. I can. I can preach pretty good, giving me the right text. The, if I got enough sleep the night before, if my kids didn't wake me up four or five times, I can preach a lot better when I've got a lot of sleep in me. But I don't care if you're talking Drew Moorhead, T.D. Jakes, Paul the Apostle, or Billy Graham, there's no preacher who can preach good enough one day a week that will give you all that you need to live this life for him. I don't care who they are. They can't do it. You need to develop an appetite for this book. You need to read it. You need to let it read you. You need to allow it to change you. And even when you don't understand it, and even when you don't like it, you need to suck it up and do it anyway. Because being an adult means that you do what you know you need to do even when you don't want to do it. And there are enough baby Christians walking around today looking for someone to lead them, someone to guide them. But the Lord has called you to step out of infancy and into adulthood and following him. And you got to get in that book. You got to get in his presence. You may not be a preacher. In fact, I don't, the world doesn't need more preachers. The world needs more teachers who are full of the Holy Spirit. The world needs more mechanics who are filled with the Spirit of God. The world needs more IT techs or whatever they're called who, who, who pray in the Spirit, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who are full of the Word. The world needs more nurses, more doctors, more pediatricians, more whatever you do. That's what the world needs. The world needs you doing what you do, but doing it as a person who is filled with the Lord. And so we're going to read a portion of scripture from 1 Samuel. And because I want you to understand that these are not just empty stories that we talk about in kids' church or that you can watch VeggieTale cartoons of. Because a lot of us, we know the Bible stories, but we know it because our kids talk about it from VBS or kids' church or because we saw it on a flannel graph when we were a kid or because we saw a, a vegetable cartoon telling the story of it. But we don't know the story because we ain't read the story ourselves. And so we're going to 1 Samuel today, but to appreciate what happens in 1 Samuel, you got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abram and he says, Abram, go to a land that I will show you. Leave the land of your father in Haran and go to the land that I will show you, the land of Canaan, which we would later call the promised land. And, and Abram takes many detours along the way, but he arrives where the Lord has called him. And God speaks to him and he says, Abram, no longer will your name be Abram. To now your name will be Abraham and I will make you the father of many nations. Your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. And your wife, Sarah, even though you are both well advanced in age, you will bear a son. You will name him Isaac. And 
We know the story, Isaac is born and then from Isaac we get Jacob. Jacob's name would later be changed to Israel, which would become the name of the kingdom of Israel or today we would call it the nation of Israel. And from Jacob, we have a man named Joseph who actually is betrayed by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. He becomes a resident of Egypt. Long story short, Joseph becomes the second in charge of all of Egypt as he is promoted out of prison. Big, just really cool. Go read it. It's great. Like I've probably heard at least a hundred sermons preached on the life of Joseph. I've probably preached a dozen sermons on the life of Joseph. Not today though. And from Joseph and his descendants, the, the children of Israel spend 400 years in Egypt as slaves under Pharaoh's. Until a man named Moses is called by God, he encounters the Lord in the wilderness and the Lord speaks to him from a burning bush, a bush that is on fire, but it's not consumed. And the bush, the angel of the Lord through the bush says, take off your shoes for where you're standing is holy ground. And Moses takes off his shoes and, and God tells Moses, you will go to Pharaoh and, and you will tell him to let my people go and you will lead the people of Israel out of this, of this slavery in Egypt. And, and so Moses, once again, long story short, that happens and then they spend 40 years in the wilderness because of their doubt that the God who freed them from slavery could not bring them into the land of promise. I just want to tell you, the God who saved you is good enough to keep you saved and good enough to take you where he's taken you. The torch passes to a man named Joshua who leads the 12 tribes of Israel into their land of promise. There's a couple of tribes that are kind of on the fence about going over. And, and so in the book of Joshua, we see a lot of war and a lot of conquest. And as the different tribes begin to take their allotted land and Joshua dies. And then we enter the period of it's called the judges. And the judges are not like courtroom judges. You know, we think of like Judge Judy. That's, I mean, that's, that's where my mind goes, you know. It's not Judge Judy. It's, it's these different men and women who were called by God to lead uh, as prophets and as military leaders during this, what would be about 300 years of ups and downs for the people, this disconnected, this dis disjointed people of God, these different tribes, they would be civil war with one another. They would fight each other. They would lose battles. They would win battles. And, and I say ups and downs, but the truth is, if you've ever read the book of Judges, you know it's mostly downs. Like, Game of Thrones ain't got nothing on Judges, y'all. Are you with me today? Like, Judges is, it's the most messed up book in your Bible. Go read. If you want to, if you want to be exposed to some drama and some intrigue and some crazy stuff, go read Judges. You've got, you've got your people like Gideon, right? Everybody knows who's Gideon, you know, who Gideon is. And if, and if you don't know who Gideon is, surely you've seen one of his Bibles laying around somewhere, right? He leads his 300 people and they defeat the Moabites and we don't talk a lot about Gideon's second half of his life because it gets really weird and it's not, it doesn't preach nearly as good as the first half of his life. We got, we got Deborah, the, the female judge. We like to talk about Deborah. We got Samson, the Fabio of the Bible. Anybody old enough? All the, all the really young people don't know who I'm talking about. 
right? Yeah, yeah, you got me. Yeah. I mean, when I picture Samson, that's what I picture, right? You know, the, like that. We got Shamgar. Nobody knows who Shamgar is, but let me tell you, before Chuck Norris, before Jason Bourne, hey, before John Wick, there was Shamgar who killed 600 men with an ox goad. I don't even know what an ox goad is, but at, I mean, he, he took them to town with it, right? That's the judges, you know, these different men, these different women who, who do these crazy things. And so you've got judges, you've got the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is a beautiful, beautiful story. You can read it easily in about 15 minutes. Of, of, of really three central characters, Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. It's beautiful, it's beautiful how it all works together and how the hand of God works through Ruth, who was a Moabite woman. Remember, Gideon defeated the Moabites many years earlier. And, but she's a Moabite woman and she eventually marries a man named Boaz and her and Boaz have a baby and they name him Obed. And then Obed has a child and they name him Jesse and Jesse has a child and we know him as David who would become the second and greatest king of Israel. And so the end of, of, of Judges and, the, and all of Ruth and the beginning of 1 Samuel, and Samuel would actually become the last judge of Israel. Historically, these are all overlapping. And we are about 900 years removed from what happens in Genesis chapter 12. And ultimately, the goal that God had in calling Abraham was that Abraham would live in this land and that he, his descendants would develop into a nation where the Lord God would be their king. And, and we actually see a little glimpse of God's intentions in the life of Solomon. Solomon was king. He is the son of David. And the Bible tells us a story about the queen of Sheba. The queen of the south came and she saw Solomon's kingdom and she saw the riches and she, she, she saw his wisdom. She was even impressed at how they set the table she was like wow you got the spoons and the fork and the knife and it's just perfect like and she she comes and she says essentially I heard about you and I heard about your God but all that I heard did not even come close to describing how great you and how great he really is and ultimately that was God's intention right to establish his people so that all the people of the world would see what it looked like when God's hand was fully on your life and fully on your country and fully on your people and that people from around the world would look at the people of Israel and say we want that but but 900 years after Abraham, we don't have that. We have a country, we have a, a, a people, a tribe that is falling apart, right? We have civil war, we have, we have battles, and we have all this stuff. And, and the last verse of Judges really sums it up well. In verse 25, it says, In those days Israel had no king. Now, it's really interesting that it says that because ultimately God's goal with the people of Israel is that he would be their king. But see, they had already forsaken him. They had set up idols and they worshiped statues and they had turned their back on the Lord. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people 
did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Man, if that ain't the world we live in today. And then we go to 1 Samuel. Remember, this is taking place in the same time as the end of Judges. There was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zuf in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, son of Ephraim. Again, you don't always understand it, but you just roll with it, right? Elkanah had two wives. Highly do not recommend. Hannah and Penina. Now we know that, that Elkanah was a Levite because of his lineage. So it was already incredibly important for men in this world to have children, specifically sons. But for a Levite, it's even more so important so that their children can carry on the, the workings of the tabernacle, workings of the temple. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah, and we believe that Hannah would have been his first wife, his wife of choice, his wife of love, the one that he chose, the one that he favored. And then his second wife, Penina, who he later would marry because Hannah was unable to have kids. Penina had children, but Hannah did not. Skip to verse six. Penina would taunt Hannah and make fun of her. And this, you remember what I said earlier about sometimes I read the Bible and I go, no, no, that's bad. Don't do that. Don't say that. Can I take that part out? Because that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't align with my God is always good theology. That doesn't fall into alignment with what I want to believe about the Lord. Why would he do that? Because this, the text doesn't say Penina would taunt Hannah because Hannah was unable to have kids. It goes out of its way to say, because the Lord kept her from having children. Why would you do that, God? I mean, you're supposed to be good. You're supposed to be loving. Why would you do that? Why are you being that way? Penina probably felt disdain towards Hannah because Hannah was the favored wife, even though Penina was the one that was able to have kids, which really is probably why she wanted to taunt her and make fun of her and make her life harder. And so today, all of this, even though I'm like halfway through my time to preach, all right? I wanna set the stage to talk about a few things that we can learn from the life of Hannah. You guys with me? You guys with me? Yeah. All right, Father, we love you, we thank you. You're the best. You really are. Even when my human intellect cannot rectify why you do things and why you don't do things that I think you should do or don't do, you're the best. You're always good. You're always loving. You're always kind. You're always gracious. You're always present. You're always, always, always good. We love you. We thank you. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen.
I don't have a title for today's message. I, I told the first service, hey, after service, if you've got any ideas for a title, let me know. And Rhonda came, I don't see Rhonda, Rhonda came up to me and she said, I should call it Fat Jesus or Getting Fat on Jesus or something like that. I'm looking at Don for confirmation, but he's walking away. Yeah. <laughs> Getting fat on Jesus. I don't know if that's going to make sense to you when I preach it, because if you've ever stuck around for both services, you know that the first service sermon and second service sermon are always very different. So I see a few of you nodding with, un, yeah, whatever. All right, so let's go ahead and skip to verse 9. Once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh. Now, Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle was. This is before Jerusalem was conquered. The Jebusites still lived in Jerusalem. Uh, the Jerusalem did not become a city uh, that belonged to Israel until King David comes on the scene many years later. So Shiloh is where the tabernacle is. And so once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this vow, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, I will give him back to you. How many times do you think she had prayed that prayer before? I wonder if this time it was slightly different though. I wonder if the fact that she was there in Shiloh, that she had had enough of Penina's taunting, she had had enough of the despair over not being able to get pregnant and not being able to have children. And because it was a feast and they were in Shiloh, which they would have traveled for, for one of the festivals, and, and, and they were all together, they were enjoying what God had done in the past. And she goes to the tabernacle and she says, God, I'm tired of celebrating what you have done. I want to be able to celebrate what you are doing. And so God, if you will give me a son, a prayer that I've prayed many times, I will give him back to you. A prayer that I would argue she's probably never prayed before. He will be yours for his entire lifetime, she says. And as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. This is a Nazarite vow. We've already talked about another man who had, not by his own choice, but had taken a Nazarite vow, and that was Samson, which is why when his hair was cut, that was kind of a big deal. And Eli, the priest, walks in while Hannah is in the tabernacle praying. And, and Greg, because this is a feast, it would have been customary for people to have been drinking wine. And so he walks in and he sees Hannah on the floor. And the Bible tells us that he sees her mouth moving, but he doesn't hear any words. And he assumes that this woman has gotten drunk at the feast and has come over here, doesn't know where she's at. Now she's laying on the floor acting crazy because of her intoxication. And so Eli rebukes her and he says, listen, lady, get up, get out of here. Take your, take your mess somewhere else. And she tells him, sir, I'm not, I'm not drunk. I ain't anything to drink. My heart is broken and I need the Lord to move. And Eli, who really is a problematic character, period, in scripture, he looks at her and he says, may God grant your request. Go on and be on your way. 
And so she goes away, and, and in verse 19, we pick it up again. The entire family, this is Elkanah's family, Hannah and Penina and all of Penina's kids. They get up early the next morning, and they went to worship the Lord once more. Then they returned home to Ramah. When Elkanah slept with Hannah, the Lord remembered her plea. And in due time, a.k.a. probably about nine months, she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I asked the Lord for him. And so I just want to pose this question today, and, and I got a few thoughts for you I want to share with you. What can we learn from Hannah's experience? What can we learn from her life? Real quick, number one, what, do, what God does through me is greater than what God does for me. Now, I know that's hard. And like, this is one of those things that I don't actually like it. Because if I'm being honest with you, I would much rather God do for me than God do in me. Because what God does for me is gonna make me happy. But what God does in me is gonna stretch me, it's gonna grow me, and more likely than not, it's probably gonna hurt a little bit. Because ultimately, here's something that we have to recognize and understand. God's greatest desire for your life is not for you to be happy. God's greatest desire for your life is not to give you what you want. Now, I am not trying to tell you that God doesn't want to bless you because I believe wholeheartedly he absolutely does. I'm not trying to tell you that God does not want to give you the desires of your heart because that would actually be in contradiction to scripture. But I am saying this, like any good parent, any good parent, a good parent cares more about who their kid is becoming than they do about their kid having what they want. And you know, as a dad, I can tell you, sometimes when I tell my kids no, it hurts me more than it hurts them. Sometimes when I have to make decisions because I see something in them and I need to make a decision that is gonna alter their behavior, also known as discipline. And understand, discipline's not a bad word. Discipline con uh, communicates love. You know why? Because to truly discipline, it requires energy. It requires commitment. It requires follow through. It requires, here's a cuss word for you for today, work. And God is a good father. The writer of Hebrews tells us he disciplines those he loves. And discipline doesn't always happen because we've done something wrong. Sometimes discipline happens because the Lord was trying to create something in us. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, Max, God's greatest desire for your life is not to give you what you want, not even to give you the desires of your heart, but to make you look more like Jesus than you look like yourself. Bottom line, end of story, no questions asked. His greatest desire for you is that you would look more like Jesus than you look like yourself. Now, here's the thing that is hard for us to understand. If we could just trust him that he really is as good as he says he is, we would understand that even though the process of that transformation can be painful and can, be, can take a lot of time and can take a lot of growth, it is always better for us in the end. Because ultimately one day when we see him face to face, we're not going to say, God, I wish you would have given me that bass boat I prayed for. We're not going to get to heaven and say, God, why didn't you give me that five bedroom house I was praying for with the white picket fence and the four acre backyard? 
When we all get to heaven, the question that we're going to be asking, not God, but ourselves, is God, why didn't I give you more? Why didn't I trust you more? Why didn't I commit to you more? Why did I not, did I not follow you with more commitment? That's the question you'll be asking. You see, we live this life on earth like this is the life that will last forever and as if the life that is to come is only going to be for a short moment. And that's why, because God knows what you don't know. He sees what you can't see. And that is why what he is doing in you and what he is doing through you is of greater importance than what he does for you. And so God uses the taunts and the despair to create change in Hannah before he creates change for Hannah. If I, my daughter Julia is in the room today and don't tell the other two, but she's my favorite. She don't even care. She's like, I know. But you know, if I took the keys to my car and I handed them to Julia and I said, here you go, babe, go wherever you want to go. Even though that for her in the moment, it might look like I am giving her a great blessing. How many of you know I am making a dumb decision because I am giving her a responsibility that she is not able to bear yet. She's not mature enough yet. She's not, she can't reach, I can barely reach the pedals. Of course she can't reach the pedals. Right? Many of us are asking the Lord for blessings in our life. And he's saying, listen, I know you better than know, you know you. If I give you what you're asking for, you can't handle it. It'll, it'll hurt you more than help you. You just don't understand that yet. And so what, what happens is God, and this, this, I'm not, I don't get this. I struggle with this, but I, I believe it to be true that the Lord withholds from Hannah the things she wants most so that her, her, her understanding of what she wants begins to align with what he wants and not with just what she wants. And sometimes you're asking the Lord for things and we take his delay and we translate that as a denial, his delay as a denial. And ultimately what he's actually saying is, listen, you just need to grow a little bit. You need to mature a little bit. You need to, you need to become a little more disciplined in your walk with me before I can trust you with that blessing, before I can give that good gift to you. Hannah stops praying for a son. She does. And she begins to pray that God will bless her with the son that will serve him. And that's the shift that occurs. And it's at that point that, that things in her life begin to change because, because God has worked in her before he begins to work for her. Number two, what do we learn from Hannah? You may have a desire, but God has a purpose. You see, the reason why I gave you the history of, of Israel up into the point of 1 Samuel is so you will be aware of the dire state that Israel is in. In fact, it's not even Israel right now. It's just a bunch of people and a bunch of tribes living however they want to live, having at war with each other, at war with different people, not following God at all. And so God has a purpose and his purpose is that, so let me say it like this. Hannah wanted a son, right, Wendy? But Israel needed a man of God. And so when, when Hannah's desire began to align with God's purpose, that's when she got what she was praying for. And so, you know, even Jesus, even Jesus had to learn this. And this is, 
He went through this. Remember in the garden of Gethsemane before he is put on the cross, he is in the garden and he is praying and he is, he knows what's coming, right? He knows that he's going to be on that cross. He knows that he's going to be tortured. He knows that he is going to suffer physically and spiritually for the sin of all humanity. And he goes to God, the father in prayer. And he says, father, let this cup of suffering pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Man, when's the last time you prayed a nevertheless? When's the last time you took your desire to the Lord and you said, this is what I want, but nevertheless, let your will be done. You see, we're, we're promised in scripture. Jesus says, it, the epistles say it, and it gets abused a lot in the church today because we don't understand it. We're promised that when we pray something in Jesus' name, that he will give it to us. Ask anything you will, pray in my name, and it will surely happen. But, but we treat Jesus' name like abracadabra, right? Like, I'm going to pray whatever I want to pray, and I'm going to put it in Jesus' name at the end of it, and then that means God has to do it. Y'all ain't helping me out any right now. It's kind of hurt my feelings a little bit. Yeah, right? Like, like it's some like incantation, right? That we can just tack on at the end. We use it like a, like a, a, a punctuation piece at the end of whatever selfish, crazy prayer we want to pray. And, and then go in Jesus name. All right. You said in your word, God, if you ask anything in my name, I'm going to give it to you. I, so in Jesus name, there will be a Lamborghini waiting for me outside these doors. When I walk out outside of church, I mean, I tell you what guys, if there is y'all ain't, I will shout, holler, run and whatever. So when I was a kid, a lot of you are sort of new and you don't know, I'm, I'm from Mississippi originally, and I grew up in a, in a very small town, and I, I was driving, and I don't mean learning to drive, I was driving by myself, solo in a vehicle, uh, by the time I was 12 years old. And um, my dad, every so often, would say, hey, take my truck to the co-op and fill it up with gas. And, and so I don't know how many co-ops have gas stations, but ours in Sebastopol, Mississippi did. It was kind of like a convenience store that also had a bunch of farming things as well. And so I would get in this truck and I would drive it and I would go to the co-op and I would pull up and I would see Mr. Eddie there and I'd say, hey, Mr. Eddie, uh, let's fill it up. And they would fill it up for me, right? And I would walk inside and I would grab me, he didn't tell me to do this, but I would grab me a bag of Doritos and a Mountain Dew because that's the Lord, right? Because you can't have Doritos without Mountain Dew. You can have Mountain Dew without Doritos. But if you're going to eat Doritos, you've got to have Mountain Dew. Okay, don't look at me like that, Brad. And I would walk up to the counter, and by about that time, the pump would have clicked, and you could see the little price out there. And this is back when gas was less than a dollar a gallon, the good old days, amen? Yeah. And, and some of y'all are like, that existed? Yeah, it did. Yeah, 1997 it did. Um, and, and so I would walk up to the counter and I would, I would tell the, uh, the, whoever's uh, working the cash register, I'd put my chips, I'd put my Mountain Dew up there, we'd look at there, we'd see the price. And I would say to them, hey, put that on Wayne's account. Put that on his tab. Because my dad, I didn't, I didn't carry cash. I didn't 
know what a credit card was. I don't even think I had a wallet. Certainly didn't have a driver's license, right? And, and so, so I didn't have any money. I didn't have any way to pay for it, but my dad had a name, right? He had the authority and he was good for it, right? And because I was his son and I had been delegated the task to do the thing that he had called me to do, right? And so I went and, and you know, hey, I got, I got a little something out of the deal too. I got some Doritos and a Mountain Dew, right? And so I could go up there and I could say, hey, put this on his tab. This is my, and they knew me. I didn't have to say his name because I, they, I was familiar with them and I was familiar with my dad. We looked the same. We had the same last name. We got the same middle name for crying out loud. And so, so I would say, put it on his tab. And see, that's what it means to pray in Jesus' name though. It means that I am so close to him that I look like him. It means that I'm so close to him that when I speak, I speak with the authority that doesn't come from me, but that comes from him who's given me the authority. It means that I have accepted the delegated task that he has assigned to me to spread the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So when I, when I live, when I talk, when I walk, when I move, when I breathe, when I preach, when I, when I do whatever I do, I do so under the authority that he has given me in his name. And so what it means to pray in Jesus name, it's not some incantation that you can add on to some selfish, silly prayer that you just want to see answered. No, it means that I am so close to him and I am so t in tune with his heart that when I pray, I am praying what he would tell me to pray. That I'm so close to him that his desires have become my desires. And I pray, I don't pray what my will be done, I pray his will be done. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And God used Hannah's pain. Now here's something I don't like, but it's true. There is nothing more powerful to change your life than pain. And when you give God your pain, oh my goodness, that is a recipe for supernatural transformation. And God uses the pain that she has felt. And he says, hey, I can do something with this lady. I, I, she wants a son, but my people need a prophet. They've been living in darkness for 300 years. They've been, they've been disconnected. They've been disjointed. I need a man of God. She wants a son, and I need a man of God. Hey, I think we can work together here. You have a desire, but God has a purpose. And when your desire begins to align with his purpose, my friend, that is a recipe for supernatural intervention in and through your life. Come on, can we celebrate the Lord this morning? <laughs> Number three, God's purpose through you is greater than what you can currently perceive. You see, we're talking about Hannah, but the truth is there's not a lot of Hannah mentioned in our Bible, but there is a lot of Samuel mentioned in your Bible. And so what, what God needed was a lady who said, you know, listen, I don't need all the credit. I don't need, I don't need all the recognition here. I just want to be obedient. I want to be submissive. I want to hear from the Lord. I want God to use me. And so God uses Hannah to bear a son named Samuel. I've already said this, but Hannah, Hannah wanted a son, right? But God needed a prophet to lead Israel. And so here, here's, here's the point is that whatever God is doing in you, you see it for what you want and you see it for what you need and you see it for what you feel in the moment. 
But Samuel would go on and he would anoint the first two kings of Israel. He would be the last judge that would lead Israel. He would be the man, not David, not Saul, that would unite the tribes under the banner of the Lord God. Samuel would be the one that would speak to the people and he would say, get rid of your Baals, get rid of your Ashtaroths, get rid of your idol gods, and we're gonna serve the Lord God and him alone. Samuel was the one who was the catalyst to see all these tribes unite under the banner of Yahweh under God Almighty Samuel was the one that God used to do all of these great works and the reason God was able to use Samuel is because Hannah said Lord he will be yours if you want to live a miserable life I know that's everybody's greatest desire right it's not but a lot of people are miserable they don't want to be miserable. They don't know why they're miserable. But the reason why they're miserable is because they live their life just for themselves. And if you want to be miserable, then live for yourself. Plain and simple. Make it all about you. Make it all about what you want. Make it all about what you need. Make it all about how you feel. Make it all about what you think. Make it all about you. And you will have everything you want. And you will still be miserable. Because a life that is all about you is a miserable way to live. And ultimately God's purpose, God's plan for your life will always be bigger than your life. It will always be bigger than just you. God wants to use you as a conduit, right? To reveal his love, his his goodness, his grace to other people. And like I said, we don't hear a lot about Hannah But if we don't have a Hannah, we don't have a Samuel. And if we don't have a Samuel, we don't have a Saul. And if we don't have a Saul, we don't have a Samuel. We don't have a Hannah, we don't have a David. And guess what? If we don't have a David, we don't have a Jesus. Because he is of the lineage of David, born in the city of David. So Hannah's pretty important, right? Now, do you think Hannah realized all this in her life, in her moment? Of course not. But you know what she did? She said, Lord, I want to give him, I want to give myself to you. And so whatever that looks like, listen, we often measure success by what we can accomplish and what we can do and what we can see in this world. But I think kingdom success looks very differently. It has everything to do not with this world, but the impact that we're making in eternity and the world to come. So God's purpose for you is always bigger. It's always better. It's always greater than just you. Every blessing that you've got, your children, your family, the money in your bank account, the time on your calendar, the skills, the giftings that you have, the knowledge that you carry, it's not just for you. God has given it to you so that he can use it. And and the fact that you have it means that he sees something trustworthy inside of you. And he says, you know what, Greg, I I can use Greg. Greg's got a willing heart and he loves me and he, he's kind and, and I can use him to be an encouragement to his pastor. Come on, brother, you encourage me all the time. Uh, JT, JT, he's, he's, other than being amazing at golf, right? He's, he's blushing, guys. You know, he can grill a mean steak, right? And, and he can have people over to his house. And listen, I'm just, I'm just scratching the surface. I could talk about every single one of you this way. And those of you I don't know all that well, I guarantee you someone could talk about you that way. Because God's purpose for you, everything you've got, 
Everything that you think is yours, it came from him. It's own loan from him. And he says, hey, take care of this for me for a while. See what you can do with it. See how well you can trust me with it. And then we go to the last, the last lesson that we can learn from Hannah. Number four, you can always trust in God's goodness. Hannah prayed for a son and she vowed that she would dedicate him to God. Now, let me just take a sidebar right here and tell you, I don't, I don't think it's very wise to bargain with the Lord. There's a few times in scripture it goes very well. There's a few times it doesn't. But she does, and it goes well for her. She says, God, if you'll give me a son, I will give him back to you. And she makes good on her vow. You go to verse 21, and it says, the next year Elkanah and his family went on their annual trip to offer sacrifice to the Lord and to keep his vow. But Hannah did not go. She told her husband, wait until the boy is weaned. Then I will take him to the tabernacle and leave him there with the Lord permanently. Whatever you think is best, Elkanah says. You got to know, his heart was torn too. But he obviously had a very high opinion of his wife, Hannah. And he said, whatever you think is best, stay here for now and may the Lord help you keep your promise. Come on, he knew, like, this is gonna be hard. This is gonna be difficult. May the Lord help you keep your promise. So she stayed home and she nursed the boy until he was weaned. When the child was weaned, Hannah took him to the tabernacle at Shiloh. They brought along a three-year-old bull. We also, Samuel would have been about three years old at this time as well. They brought along a three-year-old bull for the sacrifice and a basket of flour and some wine. After sacrificing the bull, they brought the boy to Eli. Hannah said to Eli, do you remember me? Several years ago. So this has been about four years ago, right? I'm the woman who stood here praying to the Lord. I asked the Lord to give me this boy and he has granted my request. Now I am giving him to the Lord and he will belong to the Lord his whole life and they worshiped the Lord there they worshiped the Lord there because real worship always includes laying something down to God on the altar of sacrifice real worship always Real worship is not just singing songs. Real, real worship. You know, you know, have you ever come to church on a Sunday and you thought, I don't want to sing. Preacher just said, lift your hands. I'm tired of lifting my hands. My shoulders are sore. You ever, come on. I know, I know it's true. I know what you're thinking. I don't want to sing. I don't know the song. I don't like the song. I don't want to worship. I don't feel like worshiping. I've had a long week. I've got a long week coming up. I, I did good just to get here. Can I tell you, when you choose to worship, when, even when you don't feel like worship, that's when it's the most worship? Yeah, when you choose to worship, 
even when you don't want to worship, that is when it's the most true worship. Because you were saying to yourself, I don't care how I feel. I don't care. I'm going to worship. Not because I feel like it, but because he's worthy. And you know, when you choose to not worship because you don't feel like worshiping, you are in fact worshiping. You're just not worshiping God. You're just worshiping yourself because you're doing what you want to do over what he wants you to do. You've made yourself your own God. That's what idolatry is. When you choose what you want over what you know he wants, that is idolatry. That's sin. But Hannah makes what has to be the hardest decision of her life to take the very blessing that God has given her and say, okay, I'm going to give him back. I'm going to take him back to Shiloh, away from Ramah, away from our home. You know, they didn't have a minivan that they could just hop into and drive the 50 miles and go see Samuel once a week. No, to the best of our knowledge, we know that she only saw him once a year for the next several years as she would bring him a new pair of clothes or something. A new coat, the Bible says. <clears throat> so how am I telling you that you can always trust in God's goodness? Because if, I mean, like, let's just be real, Mandy. If the story ends right there, like, can I say this when, like, this, that sucks. Like, that's a really crappy Bible story. We can't teach that when the kids church, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's one of the ones that we're going to leave out of the curriculum up there. We're not going to talk to them about this one. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there, does it? You skip to chapter 2. Verse 18, it says, But Samuel, though he was only a boy, served the Lord. I love that. That's another message for another day, but ultimately here, here's, the, here's the truth from that one sentence is, listen, your age, however young you are, even however old you are, it's irrelevant. What matters is your willingness to be obedient to the Lord. Samuel, only a boy, served the Lord. He wore a linen garment like that of a priest. Each year his mother made a small coat for him and brought it to him when she came with her husband for the sacrifice. Verse 20. Before they returned home, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, and he would say, May the Lord give you other children to take the place of this one she gave to the Lord. And the Lord blessed Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to not one, not two, but three more sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now, something else that we don't have here, it's really kind of beautiful, is Samuel, as he got older, he actually moved back to Ramah. And he, we have every reason to believe he lived in close proximity with his family. Here's the, here's the thing. You, whatever you give to God, whatever you lay down on that altar of sacrifice, while you may not always get the thing back, You'll, you'll get more than you gave. So, you know, I was a youth pastor for 10 years, and so I, I feel a little bit of a youth pastor spirit coming on. I think about, like, 
the prayers that we pray, Lord, you know, we, we sang a song like, you know, I just want you or Lord, let your spirit rest on me. Well, here's, here's the thing, like God wants to answer that prayer for you. He wants to draw you in closer. He wants to reveal more of yourself to him. But remember, real worship always requires something being laid on the altar of sacrifice. And I don't care if you're 10 years old or 100 years old. I don't care how long you've been following the Lord. The closer you get to him, the easier it is for your heart to be grieved by things in your life that do not align with him. So let me, let me say it like this. You may pray the prayer, Lord, I want to draw closer to you. And the Lord would say to you, I want to draw closer to you too. I'm going to need you to stop watching that TV show. Like, that's the youth pastor spirit coming on. But like, adults have the same problems. Yeah, you're watching that show with the violence and with the nudity and with the basically pornography. Come on. The Lord would say to you, I want to draw closer to you too. But you know, there's that woman at work you've been, you've been really spending a little too much time with and your wife doesn't know about it. Am I being too real? Like, there, there, there's places you've been going, there's things that's been coming out of your mouth, words, phrases, jokes. The Lord say, you know, I want to be closer to you too, but I can't be near that stuff. That defiles my holiness. I don't want to be near that. Maybe, maybe it's not even what the Lord is asking you to lay down. Maybe it's what the Lord is telling you to pick up. You know, we talked about Samuel's a young boy and serving the Lord. And I love here at Lifehouse, man, we've got teenagers all over this property every single week serving in different capacities. Leah right now is running our computer in the back. What's up, Leah? Yeah. Do you know why a 13-year-old is running our media? It's because there's 43-year-olds who just show up late, leave early, and don't do anything. They've been coming for months now, and they haven't joined a serve team. Maybe today, I know that's harsh, right? But, I mean, there's enough patty cake, Jesus. If you, wanna, if you want that, there's plenty of that on YouTube. You can check that out. Make you feel better later. Because remember, ultimately, at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, what does the Lord want? Does he want to make you happy or does he want to do a work in you? I would say he wants to do both. But there's one that takes high priority. So maybe today, the thing you need to pick up is say, you know what? I'm going to stop being a gospel glutton. I'm going to stop showing up and just receiving and I'm going to start giving of myself. Maybe it's not even just in this building, but hey, if you're not serving, today is the day. Go to lifehouse.info slash serve and sign up to serve today. Just go ahead and do it. Stop playing games. Like get, get involved, get on board. There's too much work to be done for you just to sit on the bench and watch everybody else do it. But, but even beyond that, how many just show up, receive, Oh, that's a good sermon. Oh, that's good worship. But you walk out and it has no lasting impact in your life. And when you speak, people don't know you've been in the presence of the Lord because there's so much toxicity coming out of your mouth that when you type on Facebook, all you do is complain about that restaurant that served you the wrong dish and didn't refund your money instead of actually proclaiming the good news of Jesus. I know I'm being simple, but I mean, isn't it all simple? We just make it hard. Whatever you need to lay down, whatever you need to pick up, I want to encourage you today 
to draw close to the heart of God. Say, Lord, I want to hear your voice. And whatever it is you're telling me to lay down, God, help me to do it. Help me to have the strength to do it. God, whatever it is you're telling me to pick up, help me to have the strength to pick it up. Help, like for some of you today, you've been debating on whether or not you should start tithing because you're thinking, I don't know how I'm gonna do it. I don't know how I'm gonna pay my bills if I start doing that. Can I, can I, can I just say, why don't you just do what the Bible says and, and, and what God says and say, he said, test me and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you that you were unable to even receive. And the blessing isn't always financial. Sometimes the blessing is you get to see your kids fall in love with Jesus. Sometimes you get to see your, your family grow closer together in their love for one another as you, as you obey the Lord, as you stay sensitive to his heart and you just do whatever God tells you to do and trust him with, with the consequences of that obedience. I guarantee you, I, I'm not saying it will be easy, but I am saying that you will see worthwhile fruit in your life as you trust him. In this life, and I'm, I'll be done really quick. I'm trying to be done, Brad. He's looking at me like, can you hurry up? In this life, there is so much that God does or doesn't do. If I'm being honest with you, it rubs me the wrong way sometimes. God, why did you let that happen? Or God, why didn't you intervene with that? Sometimes if I can use a really good Christian word, sometimes life just sucks, right? And we have these little stupid, ignorant Christian catchphrases like, oh, everything happens for a reason. No, it does not. It does not happen for a reason. If the reason is we live in an imperfect world, then yeah, okay. God works in mysterious ways. No, he doesn't. Not to the people who know him and know his word. He's trying to reveal to you his ways. He's not trying to keep it a secret. I don't know. I don't know why God allows or doesn't allow or why God does. And I don't know why life sometimes happens the way it does, but I do know that I can always trust in his goodness. And I know that his word says, it doesn't say that everything happens for a reason, Max, but it does say that whatever you give to him, trusting him with your life, he will make all things work together for good. That means somehow, some way, in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the tragedy, he will bring good out of it. So what can we learn from Hannah? Will you stand with me this morning? Number one, what God does through me is greater than what he does for me. What's he doing in you today? What's he doing in your life? Number two, I may have a desire, but he has a purpose. Number three, his purpose through you is greater than what you can currently perceive. And number four, you can always trust in God's goodness. I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Jesus said, whoever tries to hold on to their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. I just wonder today if there's anybody in the room today that would be honest enough with yourself and with the Lord and say, you know, I am far from God. But I want that to change starting right now. 
I want to give him my life. If that's for you, would you just lift your hand right where you're standing? I see you. I see you, ma'am. I see you, buddy. Anybody else? Lifehouse. Oh, there's one more. Lifehouse. Let's pray this together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Please forgive me of my sin and be Lord of my life. I want to live for you starting today. You are God. I want to obey you. I want to honor you. And I want to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, can we celebrate these three individuals?